This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. What's behind the backlash over Vogue's cover shot of U.S. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris? I'll explore why so many consider it disrespectful. And the science behind successful aging. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We're learning this week why Israel is having the most successful vaccine rollout in the world, as the country has already inoculated 20% of its population. In part, it's because of Israelized centralized system that relies heavily on technology, but also the country struck an agreement with Pfizer to exchange citizens' data like age, gender, and medical history for 10 million doses of the vaccine, including a promise of up to 700,000 doses every week. No identifying information will be given in order to maintain some privacy. For now, Israel is prioritizing people older than 60, health workers and people with medical conditions, followed by over 55s with underlying conditions. At this point, more than 72% of people aged 60 and older have been vaccinated. Researchers report another record one-year decline in the U.S. cancer death rate, a drop they attribute to success against lung cancer. The overall cancer death rate has been falling since 1991. From 2017 to 2018, it fell 2.4 percent. Falling smoking rates have helped, but experts say the drop in deaths has also been accelerated by refinements in surgery, better diagnostics, more precise use of radiation, and newer drugs. Canadian seniors are defaulting on their mortgages at the highest rate in years, and they're the only demographic seeing those higher mortgage delinquencies. The default rate is up almost 3% from the previous quarter and almost 6% from a year ago. The trend accompanies a significant spike in borrowing among seniors, Filings at the office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions showed that reverse mortgage debt hit a new record high of $4.42 billion in October, an increase of 12.5% in just a year. She competed right after World War II, before television made gymnastics one of the most popular Olympic events. Her name? Agnes Coletti of Hungary. The oldest living Olympic champion turned 100 this week, but Agnes Coletti says the past century has felt more like 60 years, and she loves life. The Hungarian woman is a Holocaust survivor and winner of five Olympic gold medals in gymnastics and 10 overall. She might have won more had her career not been interrupted by the Second World War and the subsequent cancellation of the 1940 and 1944 Olympics. 
She was forced off her gymnastics team in 1941 because of her Jewish heritage and went into hiding, working as a maid under a false identity. woman in this office, I will not be the last. Next week, Kamala Harris will be sworn in as the first female, first black and South Asian vice president of the United States. She will also grace the February cover of the iconic Vogue magazine. But there's growing backlash over the casual styling of the cover shot, which you can see on our website, and which critics say is disrespectful. Vogue Editor-in-Chief Anna Winter says there was no disrespect intended. I asked Suzanne Boyd, Editor-in-Chief and publisher of Zoomer magazine, to decode the controversy. Everything is fraught, so fraught these days. And I think the fact that it's the cover of Vogue gives it that extra bit of edge to see what it would look like and you know, and how it would be perceived. As you know, um, Vogue has been, as a brand, American Vogue in particular, has been having quite a bit of um, reorienting to do, given um, things that have come about about their office culture and how the brand is perceived as being elitist and and not being aligned with women of color as much as it could be. And I think all of that has played into the perception of this cover We see Kamala Harris wearing her own clothes, which is what she wanted to do, Mm -hmm. standing in front of a pink curtain, which is on a green backdrop, and the colors were Mm -hmm. supposed to represent her sorority. Mm -hmm. And she's wearing her trademark sneakers, Mm high-top sneakers, and Mm -hmm. people are saying it's disrespectful. Yeah, well, when I saw the cover, um, I was a little surprised. I, I felt a bit of the same way when I saw the other version of the cover, the digital version um, of her in a blue Michael Kors business suit standing in front of a gold sort of color, um, um, sort of drapery. That's the one I posted because that's the one I liked. So, and then only when I went back and looked and I looked at the controversy, I realized, okay, I see why people would feel. I just aesthetically did not like it because I didn't like the shot. And I think that's a few things that are playing into the criticism of the shot. Apart from it being disrespectful, people feel it doesn't feel like a Vogue-level quality shot. And um, Anna Winter has since explained in a statement that they thought it was a natural moment with her being approachable, but to someone like me, I thought, it was it a little blurry? You know, it looks like she wasn't quite ready for the camera. The image was shot by a photographer named Tyler Mitchell, who is mm-hmm. a black photographer, who was the mm-hmm. first black photographer to shoot a Vogue cover. Mm-hmm. His aesthetic, I mean, from what I read, is mm-hmm. more casual. This is his aesthetic. It's very easy, but he also didn't post the one of the uh, her and the trainers on his Instagram account. He posted the other one, which is um, the one of her in a blue suit, which is what they thought her and her team thought was the cover try, even though a magazine never guarantees what would be the cover. But I think the bigger issue is that here is a woman of color ascending to the highest rank in that land. Anyone in, of her you know, of her gender, her her race, her multiculturalism ever has, 
but they're treating her like she should be the approachable girl next door. Why would they choose to do that? And she does have that persona as Mamala, but she's also a former attorney general. She's a powerful woman. Why can't she be approached in that way? The Biden campaign was about very serious things. It was about the soul of America, about competence returning to the White House, people of integrity and a certain stature, as opposed to what the Trump administration had been populated with. So the question is, why wouldn't you show that? Why do you choose to diminish that and show her as the lady next door, which she's not? I'm looking at the shot with the blue suit. And mm-hmm. it's it's a nice shot, but it looks, um, I don't know what the right, it, 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 there's nothing special about it. it. It looks like a thousand corporate shots to me. Well, well this is it. And But I think, I think it looks very generic. And that's why I do understand the artistic thing of Vogue. And Vogue always tries to make news with their covers. But I think Robin Givon, and, you know, she's the Pulitzer Prize winning, critic, you know, cultural and fashion critic of the Washington Post. And she said, it's like, it's like they asked, they used her first name without asking her permission. It's too familiar. Like Madam Vice President-elect doesn't need to be portrayed not as Madam Vice President-elect, unless she lets you know that you can. Anna Winter responded and she said, well, she talked about them wanting an informal shot, but she also said, we hear the criticism. Is that good enough? I don't think anything was ill-intended. I think they misread what what she means to people of to women of color. Society diminishes powerful black women in general, and so they feel so. It's a moment that they stepped into that they didn't have to step into. I think they should probably put her on the cover again. <laughs> and, and and why would they? You know, she is. You know, and and that maybe. And maybe they'll hear it then and maybe do a different treatment. Suzanne, thank you so much. Okay, Libby, have a nice afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Zoomer Magazine Editor-in-Chief and Publisher Suzanne Boyd. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, a neuroscientist's guide to successful aging. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Given that the pandemic is hitting the older population especially hard, I think it's a good time to take another look at the science behind aging well. Neuroscientist Daniel Levitin's book, Successful Aging, has just come out in paperback, and I reached him in lockdown in Los Angeles. You say that the key is personality, and there are two main personality traits that are the key to successful aging. The interesting thing is that we think of our personalities wrongly as kind of set when we're young. But in fact, our personality is malleable. You can change at any age. And in English, we use about 2,500 different words to describe personality, uh, like stingy or generous, outgoing or introverted, um, agreeable or disagreeable, right? And of all the trait terms there are, two of them that form a cluster of traits 
predict life satisfaction and a host of positive life outcomes throughout the lifespan at any age. And one of them is conscientiousness, and the other is curiosity. Now, conscientiousness includes a whole bunch of things like uh, stick-to-itiveness and uh, reliability, dependability, doing what you say you'll do, uh, doing the right thing even when no one's looking. People who are conscientious, either throughout their lives or acquire it later through effort, really do better. An adult who's conscientious is going to follow at least minimal rules and not end up in prison. And then older adults who do what their doctor says to do are going to fare better than older adults who don't. People who are curious tend to make more interesting people. You know, I'd rather talk to somebody who's curious than somebody who's incurious. They know more, and they're more interesting conversationalists, and they're more likely to want to learn about me, um, which I always find charming. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) You also say that there are certain things that the aging brain is actually better at than the younger brain. What are they? Well, one thing is due to structural changes in the brain, some shrinkage of certain structures, such as the amygdala, which is the fear and suspicion center, that shrinks. And so older adults become more trusting. Uh, Of course, the downside of that is that they're more amenable to scams, but they tend to be, uh, and again, I'm talking statistical generalizations, not every adult is more trusting. There are some suspicious, cantankerous old coots, I'm sure, but generally speaking, more trusting, more compassionate, more empathetic. Those are positives, Uh, and it leads to what Alison Gopnik, the great Canadian developmental psychologist, has called grandparent syndrome, where grandparents just seem to be easier going than uh, parents, and in many respects, more fun to hang out with. Uh, for the grandkids anyway, if not for the parents. (laughs) Another thing is that as we get older, we tend to become better at pattern matching and problem solving. That ability to detect patterns increases as you age because you've experienced more. Most older people have experienced more than most younger people. So the time that you hit 60, 70, 80, you've seen a whole lot of stuff and you're able to extract the patterns from it and the commonalities, and as a consequence, are a much better source of advice for younger adults, especially for interpersonal problems, because you've seen it all. And and this new problem that might be vexing a younger person, you've seen it a half a dozen times before when you're older, and you know which solutions worked and which ones didn't. You also give the example that uh, you want an older radiologist looking at your x-rays as opposed to a younger one? Basically, a lot of what uh, radiologists do uh, is they look at at x-rays and they try to figure out if you've got cancer or not, or or a broken bone or not, something like that. And they have to extract from the thousands of x-rays they've seen and the thousands of corresponding clinical outcomes which of the judgments they made were accurate and which weren't. And that experience is irreplaceable. There are vast efforts to try and automatize 
uh, X-ray reading and through machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, and they're getting better, but they're not as good as an old radiologist. A young radiologist just doesn't have enough experience. An old radiologist has seen the patterns and lived long enough to see whether his or her patients lived after that diagnosis. It's somewhat similar to the argument I've made about choosing a surgeon. If God forbid you need surgery, you want to ask your surgeon about this particular operation. How many times has that person performed it? If the answer is, well, I've done it six or eight times and I I saw it done in medical school, I would say you look for another surgeon. Absolutely. But for major, yeah. I mean, let them learn on someone else or, or be the second surgeon in the room, not the first, not the primary. Uh, for major surgeries like breast cancer, prostate cancer, brain surgery, it's not uncommon to find someone who's done the particular surgery you need 5,000 times by the age of 45. So you don't necessarily need an old person. And now with robotic and da Vinci surgeries, you can have a 70-year-old surgeon whose hands may tremble a bit, but the robot's actually moving the knife, and the experience there is irreplaceable. You wrote the book a year ago. In this year, we've been hit by COVID. COVID has hit older people disproportionately in terms of morbidity and mortality and in terms of engendering social isolation and even active people who are around your age or mine don't see the younger members of their family. What do you think the impact of that is? As a neuroscientist and as a, and just as a human, a social human, I've watched this with horror. We are a social species. The specific thing about the pandemic, the advice that I have is that all of us of any age need to make a deliberate effort to stay social. What you and I are doing right now uh, having a conversation. And, and you and I don't know each other. This is the first time we've met, if I'm not mistaken. That's about the most complicated and neuroprotective activity for the brain we know of. There's so many mental processes going on while you and I are trying to have a conversation. It's more complex than designing a rocket ship or doing brain surgery or being a concert pianist. It's neuroprotective. It builds up new neural pathways and new neural strengths. So I would encourage people, even the shy among us and those who feel isolated, to figure out a way to, on a regular basis, be meeting with people a few times a week uh, in some virtual way that's safe, and especially new people. Daniel Levitin, thank you so much for this. Thank you. That was Daniel Levitin, author of Successful Aging, a neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.